Father, we thank you for the truth that you have given to us in this portion of your word. And I, I can't imagine, Father, all the ways that we have been impacted as we've studied this portion, as we've got into it, and your Holy Spirit has spoken into our hearts through it. The, the different ways that we have been changed, transformed into the image of your Son, how we have been led to examine our lives and, and been encouraged by the truth that we do know God, that we have been born from above, that we are going to be like Christ. The day is coming. So I thank you for all the encouragements, all the conviction, all the sanctification that has been happening over these last several months. I rejoice in that. And I I thank you, Father, that the grace that you have been showing to us is just going to go on and on until finally we are glorified with Christ and changed into his likeness. Father, for this last time where we meet in this book, I pray that the glory of what we have and of what we know through Jesus would hit home again. And we would be rejoicing and and worshiping anew. And I pray, Father, by the response of your people to your word, you would be honored. I pray that you would be pleased. So pour out upon us, as we always ask, your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. A couple of things have amazed me and appalled me over the last year, especially over the last year. I have been amazed and appalled at the sheer number of false teachers and appalled at the number of believers who buy what they're selling. I have found it to be the case that false teachers are rampant in North Louisiana. More than more than I thought there would be. When I was going into the ministry, of course you know there's false teachers. The Bible warns about them all over the New Testament. But you think, well, how often am I actually going to encounter one? But how rampant are they? We've had them in our church. Don't look around. Because thank God that they didn't stay. If they weren't going to repent, that they didn't stay. But they're everywhere. And it's so easy for believers to buy what they're selling, to be sucked into their message, deceived. And the results are always devastating. And I'm not saying that every person who disagrees with my interpretation is a false teacher or anything like that. But when a teacher rejects the fundamental truths of the Word of God that have been passed down to us, the faith once for all given to the saints, and rejects that truth, and and puts a different spin or gives a different interpretation, twists the scriptures to mean something else than what the church has believed all through its history, there's a lot of people like that around here. And I I know that this isn't just a North Louisiana problem, but it is a North Louisiana problem. And the results are devastating. We have been countering the message of false teachers as we've gone through 1 John. 
we have been calling these particular false teachers proto-gnostics. I know that sounds like a complicated technical seminary, not my world kind of word, but I think it's a helpful description. We call them Gnostics, first of all, because they claim enlightenment. A spiritual knowledge, gnosis, you can, that's the Greek word for knowledge, and you can hear in gnosis the word Gnostic. They claim this gnosis of God. It's for the elite. They, they claim to be the ones in the know. We also call them Gnostics because they have this hang up on flesh, on matter, like this, on stuff. They have a major hang-up with it. So that the Gnostics said, as they believed in Jesus, they said, well, he has to be different than what the apostles say. He can't be Jesus Christ, Son of God in the flesh. And you remember I was telling you about this major opponent that we have learned from church history opposed to the Apostle John by the name of Serinthus, who taught that Jesus was a very moral but very mortal man. And at his baptism, the Christ Spirit came upon him. Before that, he was not the Christ. He was not the Son of God. But the Christ Spirit came upon him at his baptism and left from him just before his crucifixion. Because how can Jesus Christ be the Son of God in the flesh? The flesh is evil, they said. Spirit is good, but matter is evil. So that's how we know that they were Gnostics. But we call them proto-Gnostics because full-blown Gnosticism wouldn't be an issue for, for several decades. But they caused major devastation to the churches that John was addressing because they were once a part of the church. For a long time, these false teachers were regarded as brothers in the Lord. They expressed faith in God's Son. They obeyed Christ's commandments, and they loved God's people. But all of that died away, and they left proving that they were never truly of the church and of God to begin with. But they did not leave the church just to leave it alone. They left the church to oppress it from outside. And what happened is, as they were claiming all of this enlightenment and knowledge, the people of God who were within the church were very confused. And they said, do we actually know the truth? With what they're saying, differing so much from what we are preaching and hearing every Lord's Day as we meet together around the Word. Do we know God or do they know God? And you remember how John responds. He says over and over again, some three dozen times throughout this letter, you know. You know God. You know the truth. Now, if he was just saying, you know, they don't know, you do, I mean, John could just be one of those nice guys who doesn't like to see anybody upset. And he comes along and he pats you on the back and he says, don't worry, you're all right. I'm all right. We're all okay. Don't worry about it. He could just be one of those nice guys. But John isn't just one of those nice guys who doesn't like it when people are upset. John is the apostle of Jesus Christ. And he grounds this you know the truth and you know God in three things. There's a series of three tests. The doctrinal test, the moral test, and the relational test. And he tests over and over again for doctrine, faith in God's Son, morality, 
obedience to God's commandments and right relationships, love for God's people. And where those three standards are met, the people of God, all of us, are encouraged that I do know God. I am from Him. I have been born again. I belong to Him, truly, as these three standards are met. And in the process, the false teachers are exposed because they deny Jesus Christ come in the flesh. They don't obey His commandments and they don't love His people. And so they are exposed as the frauds and the spiritual hucksters that they were. Now, quick qualification before I move on. The only thing that is required for salvation of those three things is faith in God's Son. The only thing. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're not saved by our works, so that no one may boast. God alone gets the glory. But the the result, not the requirement for salvation, but the result of salvation is that transformation and the inevitable obedience to the commandments of God and the love for God's people. And that's why all three tests must be met for us to have assurance of eternal life, that we know we have eternal life. Now John finishes out his letter, and we're about to read, with a flurry of we knows. They're massive we knows, not massive knows. Massive K-N-O-W apostrophe S, okay? And we'll take up our reading. Our concentration is 19 to 21, but we're going to begin in verse 18. Oh, these are huge. You need to be able to insert yourself in these we knows. You must be able to insert yourself with these saints that I know these things too. I know they are true and they are true for me. Because if you don't, if you can't insert yourself here, you don't have life. So this is a, that's why I say these are massive. It's a matter of life and death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. Second, we know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children... We'll see, this is not just tacked on at the end. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Again, I want to stress the importance of this. You must. If you have life, you, you are able to insert yourself into these we know statements. If you have life truly, you will be able to say, I know. I know that I am from God. I know that the Son of God has come and has given me understanding so that I may know Him who is true. And I am in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. You must be able... This is personal. You must be able to see yourself in these. Now these, again, these are massive. 
And I think that they're, let me, let me just try one on for you. And tell me that this doesn't seem a little bit arrogant, okay? I am from God. Do you talk like that? The Bible says we know we are from God. Do you think like that? Is that in your vocabulary? Do you think as big as the Bible thinks? Well, <laughs> that's a big question. Of course we don't. But let me, let me put it this way then. Do you speak as big as the Bible speaks? Do you claim what the Bible claims for you? Do you claim what the Bible claims for you? I, this, to me, it sounds very big, like, can I actually say that? The Bible says we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It, it almost feels too big to say. And it makes me think back to John chapter 7. I want you to turn there. Turn, hold your place, of course, First John 5, but turn back to John chapter 7. Look at verse... 27. The people who are hearing Jesus in Jerusalem are debating back and forth whether he is the Christ or not. And so they come, we come to verse 27 and it says, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Which is actually, they were wrong at that point. Um, and you, you look at Matthew chapter 2. It's very clear that many people knew where the Christ was going to come from. He was going to be born in the city of David in Bethlehem, right? Okay, so some of the, I mean, there's just some of the debate points back and forth are wrong. So Jesus proclaimed, verse 28, as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And then as you go a little bit further in this passage, you see that in verse 32, the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. These are the temple guard, and they, they, go, to, uh, they go to seize Jesus. But Jesus is still speaking. And he says stuff like, not only um, do I know him and do I come from him, but they say, he says rather, in verse 37, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So the people go back and forth. This is the Christ. This is the prophet. No, he's not. We don't think so. Yada, yada, back and forth. And then... It says in verse 45 that the officers who had been sent from the religious leaders came back to them, to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, why didn't you bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like him. And of course not. Who would talk like this? Who, who would say to people, okay, well, okay, let me, let me put it like this. Let's say that, I'm going to use Ryan as an example. When I use people as an example, if they were feeling tired or they were distracted, suddenly they're with me. So now I know Ryan's with me. He was already. 
Okay, so let's say that uh, Ryan is outside Saturday afternoon, um, uh, blazing hot August sun pouring down on him, and he's cutting the grass out there. And uh, I go out to, to talk to him. He's out in the sun. I stand in the shade, of course. And he's just, he's dripping wet, and he says, man, I'm thirsty. And I say to him, Ryan, you know what you need? You need me. I need you. What do you mean? I need some water. No, Ryan, for, for all of your thirst and for all of your need, you need me. Now he's thinking, okay, Brother Mike has been in the sun too long. Brother Mike has become one of those false teachers he's always warning about. What is going on? Can you say it again? Ryan, you need me. Okay, now I know he's lost it or we're going to about to kick him out of the church or something. Because who has the audacity to say those things? I mean, either if these things are not true that Jesus is claiming, he says, I came from God and I know God and all who are thirsty come to me for drink. If you are hungry, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the door, and so on. If these things are not true, Jesus should not be saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He should be saying, I am the ego. Because he would be the biggest ego to have ever walked on this planet if these things are not true. But even in your own survey of the New Testament Gospels and your reading of the words and the works of Jesus, the servanthood, the humility, the compassion, the obedience to the Father, the going to the cross, you know that's not Jesus. You know He's not insane. He's not a liar. He's not a great big ego, a blowhard. He's none of those things. He is the way. And He is the truth. And He is the life. So now, I don't know if you noticed this, but some of those things that shocked the temple guard that Jesus was saying are the claims that John is making about us and for us. He says, we, Jesus said, I came from God and I know Him. And the people were thinking, what? Now John is saying the same things about us. He says, we know we are from God. And we know that we know Him. Do you, do you make the same claims for yourself that the Bible makes about you? Do you speak in these terms? Is this in your vocabulary? I kind of doubt it. Because I know it's, we're alike. And I don't think in these terms very often that I, I don't say to people, I am from God. And I'm not just saying that you should say this as some kind of mantra or, you know, some incantation to ward off evil, nasty demons and ward off sickness. I'm not talking like Joel Osteen, you know, Say this, I am from God and your life will go right. That's not the kind of thing that I'm, I'm saying. The power is in the truth. The power is in the reality, not in just the speaking of the thing. The magnitude is in the truth. We are from God. We are His creations. His new creations. We have been born of God from above. 
We have the life of God within us. John says, we know we are from God. But the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Look back at verse 18. You remember what was said there? It said that Jesus protects us. And the evil one, therefore, cannot touch us. So he, he can ask for us. He can demand to have us, that he can sift us like wheat. He can slander us before God and accuse us. But he cannot have us out of the Father's hand. The cross of Jesus Christ shuts the mouth of the lion. Though we are in his den, in his lair, his mouth is shut by the cross. Who is there to accuse? God has justified. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus has died. The cross of Jesus Christ shuts the mouth of the roaring lion who is against us. But the whole world lies under his power. Now this is not speaking, when it says the whole world, it's not speaking of the planet. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The earth belongs to the Lord. So the world that lies under Satan's power is the present worldly system in rebellion against God. It's everything and everyone who is caught in the web of the father of lies. That's the world. It's every philosophy and idea and culture that is way of life and person that is against God. And John says, all of it is in the power of the evil one. The idea is the world is just lying there in his power, languishing, not fighting, really just content, content to be in the power of Satan. And we could protest at that point and say, don't people feel this void in their hearts? This Don't they have this quest for more? And they go searching for truth? Yes, that's true. But unless they land on Jesus Christ, that quest for truth is just another one of the devil's lies to say, you're doing pretty good. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one, unaware of their condition. How can a dead man feel and see his own dead condition. How can they be free? There's only one way to be free. Someone must tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. Someone must tell those who are dead in their sin the gospel, the gospel of God concerning His Son. How did we get free? How did we get free? This brings us to verse 20. We know... This is how we got free. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. God sent His only Son, the Savior, the only hope of mankind. And Jesus came to give us the truth. But He's not, he's not just one of those religious teachers who wants to talk out God, you know, who wants to get in a circle and have discussion about God. Can you see Jesus doing this, you know, he says to a person on his left, so what does God mean to you? Hmm, that's good. Okay, what does God mean to you? Well, that's kind of weird. I haven't heard that idea before. 
let me tell you what God means to me. He didn't come to give whole discussion. He came to give revelation. And he is the revelation of God. He is the word of God. He is not just giving us a truth, telling us what to do to arrive at the truth. He himself is the truth. He doesn't say, go and do this. He says, come to me. He doesn't say, believe this and that. He says, believe in me. Because he is the truth of God. He is the word of God. He came to give us revelation so that we would have understanding. But understanding and knowing about God is not an end in itself. Doctrine can kill. Doctrine may bring life. Teaching the truth of God may bring life. But what about the person who is puffed up with their knowledge? Who loves all the ideas they find in the Bible about God, but is never transformed by them? Who is never through them brought to life? So don't pat yourself on the back if all your doctrinal ducks are in a row if you have a good handle on the fine points of systematic theology and you, you can just uh, spit out God, man, Christ's response, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. If you can answer the age-old question, how many angels could dance on the head of a pin if that pin were resting upon a rock which God made so heavy not even he could lift it? That's a doozy. I'm just kidding. It's not. Don't pat yourself on the back if you know about Him. The end of understanding is God. Truth leads us to God. So that's what John says. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. I'm assuming that most of you enjoy learning. If you don't enjoy learning, seriously, not a joke, that's a problem, okay? But I'm assuming most people enjoy learning. You, you know, there's an idea that you've never heard before and you can just, you can just see, this is true. This is going to affect how I live, you know? We love, most people love to learn. But as I learn, I have become aware that there it seems like there are more ideas on this planet than there are people. And I only have a handle on a couple of those ideas. You can tell me scores of things and it will all be new information to me. So I don't know all that is true. Not nearly. But here's the thing. I don't know all that is true, but I know Him who is true. We know God. And on this side of glory, that, that claim, that truth, I think it's the biggest, the most glorious truth that there is. And the, the only way it will be improved upon, of course, is when we see Him. When faith turns to sight. But we know the one true God. I don't think you're going to hear, I know you're not going to hear anything better than that all day long. No matter what anybody says to you. I don't care if they tell you you have 
you've won the lottery, and you're a billionaire. If they, you take some kind of health checkup on the internet, and they tell you you're due to live for 120 years. Who cares? We know God. And, and that being said, if you hear bad news, if you hear devastating news, you have this truth that trumps all of that. We know Him who is true. One of the condemnations of the world is they are ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. So we don't, there are all kinds of things we don't know. I'm, I'm consistently amazed at the ingenious of the world. With all these technological advances, it is insane. And we say, did you know that they invented this or there's this thing out there? And you're like, are you serious? It's incredible. The, the speed of change. It's amazing. So, yeah, there's a lot we don't know. But we know Him who is true. It's awesome. He is awesome. And we are, we know this, at the end of verse, second part of verse 20. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. First of all, there's a, a, a special construction in this sentence and I think that the New International Version is wrong when it says, I think, I might be making a wrong statement there, but I think the NIV says, we are in Him who is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ, something to that effect. But I think that the way this should be translated is, we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. Because the point of this passage is, or one point is, without Jesus, we have no understanding of God. He is the revelation of God. Without Jesus, we can't know God. And now he's saying, without being in Jesus, we can't be in God. But being in Him, we are in the Father. Being in the Son, we are in the Father. We are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now what does this mean? I really want to just say, I don't know, and move on. Because I, I just have this strong feeling that when we get to glory, our understanding of being in Him will be so much greater that, than it is now that we'll be like, man, I didn't know anything about what it means to be in God. But I, I can't just skip it. And I, I'm going to give it a shot. Let's say, okay, we got two people who are flying from Monroe to Dallas. One of these is a businesswoman who makes the trip all the time. So it's Monday morning and, and she boards the plane and she takes her seat and the flight attendant begins her spiel about what to do in case of an emergency and this is where the exits are and if you need the bathroom, here it is and, and so on and so forth. And this person just closes her eyes. She wait, she's waiting for the plane to talk, take off so she can pull out her electronics, although I think that's an old rule and they can't pull out their electronics now. Anyway, she's not paying attention whatsoever because she knows the speech by heart and if ever they have a problem with the flight attendant being sick, this businesswoman can stand in her place and give the whole speech herself. No problem. And then there's Kelly. Kelly gets on the plane and she is trembling like a leaf. Because she hasn't flown before, because she's afraid of heights, and when the, the flight attendant begins her speech, Kelly is on the edge of her seat. Her ears are tuned to every word. She's taking notes. Just in case there is some kind of emergency, she will be prepared. 
And the whole flight over to Dallas, she, she never loses that sense of nervousness. But when they arrive in, in Dallas, the businesswoman who takes this flight every week, she gets off, no problem, and Kelly gets off. She has also made it safely. Why? Because both of these people, even though they had different degrees of confidence and faith in the aircraft, faith in the ability of the pilot to get them to Dallas, even though there were different levels of faith, both got on board and both were in the plane. Being in the plane, they were going where the plane was headed and would get to the same destination as that aircraft. And that's a little bit of what it means to be in Christ. You see, maybe you've been in Christ for, for 20 years and your faith in Jesus is much more matured and advanced than when you first were in Christ when you were first converted. But you are not more justified now than you ever were. You are not more in Jesus than you ever were then. And it does not matter what degrees of faith, what level of faith, strong or weak, being in Christ, we are going where He is going. And we share His destination. We will be glorified with Him. Not everybody gets on board. Some have so great objection to him, so much unbelief and doubt that they don't get on board. But being in Christ, we will make it. We will be in glory. Jesus put it in the picture of the, the branch being in the vine. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And being in the vine, we are also in the Father. Being in the Son, we are in the Father. We have His life. We have the life of God within us. That's what it means to be in Him. We have His life in us. And I'm not saying we are gods. We don't share in His Godhead. Here's a theological term for you. He doesn't ever share with us His incommunicable attributes. We will never be all-powerful. We'll never be all-knowing. We will never be everywhere present. That is God and God alone but we have His life in us. We have the life of God within us. And forever with Him, we will live. So, there's so much more. This is, this is huge. But we know, even if we don't know all the particulars of what it means, we know that we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. And now this statement about Jesus, He is the true God and eternal life. This is one of the strongest statements of the deity of Jesus in all of Scripture. Jesus, God's Son, is the true God, and He is eternal life. Are you in a right relationship with God? That's a huge question. And I've probably heard, in answer to that question, more well, I don't know. I hope so. I think, you know, I'll just have to find out when I get there whether I'm in a right relationship with God or not. If my sins are forgiven, I have eternal life. I'm not sure. I just can hope. Because it's a big question. It's one of those statements that if you say to people, I'm in a right relationship with God. I have eternal life. I am from Him and I know Him and I am in Him. It just, it seems like you have to have a certain level of gall to, to, to say that kind of thing. But it's easily settled. What do you think of Jesus? 
What is your heart's posture toward Jesus? No one will ever be saved who does not have that encounter with Jesus. And I'm not talking about something esoteric or mystical or abstract, like you have to get caught up in a vision, or you need to see so many symbols and signs, or anything like that. I'm just talking about having the truth of God's revelation concerning His Son pressed on your heart, where you come face to face with the person and the words and the work of Jesus, and you have to decide. The Bible pronounces your guilt. It says you are a sinner. It says you have fallen short of the glory of God. You are not good and you are not righteous, and on your own, you can't make it. What is your heart's response? Do you say, I know it. I know that it's true and there's nothing that I can do about it. The Bible says that God sent His Son and He did all that was needed to be done about it. Jesus lived the life that we could not live. He lived the life that God's holiness commanded. And then He died the death that we could not die. The death that God's justice demanded. He lived for us, and He died for us, and for us He lives. And when you hear the pronouncement of guilt, do you agree that you are a sinner? And do you find when you encounter Jesus in the Word that your head is lifted and your gaze is directed to that bloody cross of Calvary? And do you see upon that cross your bleeding, dying Savior? Do you say, that's my punishment? That's my sin that he is bearing and my punishment he is paying. That's my death. That's my only hope to have my sins atoned for. And do you find your eyes directed to that empty tomb? To those empty grave clothes? And do you say, here is my hope. There is my death upon the cross and here is my life. Do you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead? And do you have hope only in Him for salvation? Do you have a right relationship with God? Do you know that you are from Him? Do you know that you know Him? Do you know that you are in Him? What do you think about Jesus? Because all of this hinges upon your heart's posture toward Jesus Christ. Tell the Father what you think of His Son. There's the answer. We can know clearly one way or the other if we have a right relationship with God or not. Here are the last words of this letter. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So many of people have thought, this is weird. It feels like kind of tacked on. We have these really, really big things that we know, these massive we knows. And then little children, keep yourselves from idols. Did somebody else write this? That's the way a lot of commentators think. It makes perfect sense. He is the true God and eternal life. We are from Him, we know Him, we are in Him. True God and eternal life. What do we want to do with idols? Keep yourselves from idols, of course. That's what we want. Jesus is the true God and the eternal life who was with the Father and was manifested to us, who came for us for our understanding, who came for us for our life and knowledge and fellowship with God. 
He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, who is and who was and who is to come. He is Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. He is the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his own blood, who made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. That's our Jesus. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Of course, if you see him, if you have a true perception of who Jesus is, you will keep yourself from idols. If you see him clearly, you won't want anything to do with the world. Church family, keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Behold him in such a way, have him so clearly and big in your vision that all of the Jesus substitutes of this world get pushed out. Let him fill your heart and enlarge it to such a degree that all the other Jesus substitutes get pushed out. You know, I was thinking, I don't know why this week, but I, I was thinking, you know, some of our youth, I've been their pastor for more than half their lifetimes. And they're getting on to hearing me, well, almost 500 times on, on Sunday mornings. And combine that with Wednesdays and other stuff, VBS, and we're getting close to probably a thousand times hearing me preach and appeal and all of that. And that can be one of the, the triggers that leads to a hardened, callous heart. I've heard this. I've heard this all my life. And we just can become dead and desensitized to it. There, there's a huge... We talked about the technological change. And we all know this. But screen time is just screaming for our attention constantly. All the little dings and beeps and all that junk. It's not junk, really. I have screens, too. But all of these things that the, the world is thrusting upon us that are demanding our attention... And so easily they can steal our hearts away from Jesus. All of the stuff pressing. Does it with you? Jesus said, you might need to gouge out your eyes. You might have to cut off your hand. It's better to go into heaven with one eye, one hand, or maimed than to enter into hell a whole person. And what he was saying was, get radical to keep yourselves from idols. Do whatever you need to do. You know, there are apps where you can shut down certain social media until an hour of the day. Until you have been quiet with Christ and sought His face, don't give your attention to all of those things that it's not just, here, I'll answer back real quick and then I can just put my attention on Jesus. You'll go to a back and forth and one thing will lead to another and pretty soon you've frittered away all this time. Just do whatever you need to do. Keep yourselves from idols. And let me say, men and women, you know, we, to help each other keep our eyes on Jesus, we have these regular home fellowships weekly 
in the middle of the week. Not everybody is able to attend. I understand that. But for those of you who do get together on these things, help each other to focus on Jesus. We craft this time for worship together and growth together and discipleship together and pursuing Christ. Let's not waste that time by talking about comparatively trivial things. Because it is very important that we know each other, know about each other, just keep up with each other's lives. But we have this hour and a half to fix our eyes and our ears upon Jesus together. And together learn. And together follow. And together keep ourselves from idols. Let us seek the glory of God found in the face of Jesus Christ. So, if... Um, I know Gary and Rhonda at least used to do this when their kids were younger. So what was the sermon about today? What did you learn today? Okay, so what was the sermon about today? We have these massive we knows. We know that we are from God. We know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and be in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And basically, to sum up the sermon, I just recited, paraphrased the verses. But we know these things. They're huge. We are from God. We know Him and we are in Him. Do you claim them? Are they in your vocabulary? Do they lead, does this knowledge lead you to keep yourself from idols? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for 1 John. We thank you for this word about your son. And we thank you, we praise you that he has come. The way, the truth, the life the true God and eternal life Himself, so that we may know You and be in You. Father, I pray that these truths would just fill our hearts and expand them so that all of our, our confidence is in them and we live according to them. And they become so much part of us that they are in our vocabulary. We feel free and confident to, to make these incredible claims that you make for us who believe in Jesus. Father, I've been up here so many times, said so much, made so many appeals, but what I say can't change me what I say can't change anyone, not my mannerisms, nothing. It's you. You, Father, must take your truth and by the power of your Spirit, plant it in our hearts. I beg you, Father, according to your grace, according to the, your steadfast love and the multitude of your tender mercies in Jesus, Please do that for us. Do not pass a single person in this room by. Pour your grace upon us all. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen.